Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Good morning, folks. It's a good day to be alive and kicking. I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. We did. And uh, all of us except two got the bellyache. I don't know what the problem was. But it wasn't that bad. They tell me that, uh, and Matt and his wife both are at home with COVID, and they tell me that, that it's getting a little, that's, that COVID thing is getting to be, uh, I guess, a substantial increase in the numbers of getting it for some reason or other. I don't know whether that's true or not, but that's what I was told. If that is true, let me give you some good doctoral advice. Wash your hands a lot. I'm convinced that that uh, clean hands and a pure heart is probably better than a mask because uh, my wife and I, we practice that faithfully and uh, that we wash our hands probably, I don't know, let's say six, seven times a day probably. Every time we were around somebody or what I did. And neither of us got anything except, you know, we, we stayed aggravated with each other periodically. But other than that, we did pretty good. And at our age, I guess that's good. The text today is all about thanksgiving. It's from the fifth chapter of 1 Thessalonians. It's an interesting passage <clears throat> because it's at the end of the book. And... and uh, and, at the, and, and it was really, initially, the first and second Thessalonians both were letters written by the Apostle Paul to churches in Thessalonica. Because churches, plural, because there were many of them, because they met in households. And at the end of a letter, just like uh, when people have visited you on Thanksgiving or you've visited other folks, when you get ready to leave, you go, well, be safe, drive carefully, text me when you get home. You always say those little things at the end. What is written here at the end of this letter is kind of like that. It wasn't meant to be a doctrinal statement that you do this or I'll beat you with a stick. It's not that at all. It is a saying, it is him writing to the church there and saying, and by the way, blah, 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 blah. So I'll read that, but understand that it, it is meant in that context. It's a, it is a parting statement, just like you would say uh, when you're leaving from your grandma's house or whatever and, and going home. Just uh, two or three verses here, uh, starting at verse 16. He says, be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything and hold on to that which is good. And avoid every kind of evil. Now this is a list of things that he's just pitching out there that, uh, to, as reminders for them. It wasn't meant, if you do this, you know, you're in trouble. He wasn't saying that at all. He was just encouraging people to work toward achieving some things that do not come easily. 
Now, it needs to be said, I, I was this past uh, Saturday morning in the men's Bible study, and I like to give them a little promo. Uh, they, the lesson, they were talking about Thanksgiving in the discussion among the men. And what was interesting to me, because I just primarily listen, I sometimes put in two cents worth of just, you know, ministerial wisdom. If you, and anyhow, that's supposed to be humorous, but I don't know what your problem is. Uh, the, uh, and I noticed what they were talking about coming to God and keeping him in your life and blah, 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 blah. And invariably, in every instance except maybe one, it was because of what we will get out of it. If we're in trouble, we go to God and we pray to get out of trouble. And you know what? It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Because when you do that, you're putting yourself in the center of primary concern. And before I'm through, I'll show you that prayer is conditional. Answered prayer is conditional. And one of the conditions is, are you putting yourself in the center of your will or are you putting God in the center of your will? Most of us, and a lot of it I'm certain has been because we haven't done a very good job of teaching it. When you become a Christian, the objective is to get yourself out of the center of God's of, of, of your will and put God in the center of your will and if and when you do that and it isn't done very often by even practicing Christians we're all by nature self-centered we all are and the and the and the the primary work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer is to get over being so self-centered and putting God in the center of our life, our family, and our church. And if and when that happens, significant changes start taking place. So the Apostle Paul is addressing that. He actually was stronger on that one issue uh, with the church in Corinth than he is with the church in Thessalonica. In, in Corinth, he just was really hard on them, saying, you know, you, you're, he is, in northern Kentucky talk, he would say, you're a bunch of self-centered jerks. And you need to get over that if you're ever going to be of any value for the kingdom of God. Now, with that in mind, let's look at two or three of these suggestions in, of encouragement that the Apostle Paul gave. And there, this was primarily assigned by Matthew because of Thanksgiving. He starts off by saying, be joyful always. Now, you know very good and well that normally and naturally that cannot happen. Because what we have a tendency to do in the flesh, not in the spirit, but in the flesh is to react to what happens to us. That, and uh, 
Because happiness, as you know, by definition, is a response to something good happening to us. Joy that he's talking about here is not something that is natural. This is something that comes only, only through the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and we need to talk about that because that's what he's trying to get across. If and when the church ever ceased to be self-centered and became Christ-centered, you would see people pressing into the kingdom of God. It is that attractive. The Apostle Paul addressed this subject in every letter that he wrote. How do we get from being natural to becoming godly? I grew up in, in what's called the Christian church. My mother was a Bible teacher. My grandpa on my mother's side of the house, Sunday school superintendent at Milford Christian Church for 50 years. And in that particular church setting, we were taught, you're just Christians, but you're not the only Christians. You're just Christians, but not the only Christians. So don't ever get the... And Mother used to say that in, up the ro road from where she lived there in Bracken County, at a little community called Neve, there was a Methodist church. She called them Shouting Methodist. And she said... They made a little racket during the church service, but they were most godly people, she said, I ever met. And, uh, and, and I've, I've thought a lot about that. She said, you know, the joy that was in their church service was really impressive. It wasn't a phony rah, rah, rah type thing. It was just an atmosphere that was there that permeated the entire congregation when you came in, you could almost feel it when you walked in the door. These were godly people, spiritual-filled people. And the result was they, because, and, and they were poor people. There weren't many wealthy people in Bracken County, I guarantee you. It was a poor area. But when everybody's poor, you don't really notice it much. You know, everybody else poor too, so you, you didn't think you were especially poor and had plenty to eat because I had a great old big garden, a lot bigger in this room. But life in the kingdom of God, how do we get to the place where we're not so worried about getting by day by day making a living, so on and so forth, how big our house is, how new the car is, how much, you know, all of this stuff. Because Jesus said, and not very many of us actually test it out, even though he tells us to. Jesus said, if you'll seek first the kingdom of God, if you'll do that as a priority of life, I will guarantee that you will have food and clothing and other stuff. 
Now, that doesn't mean you should give up your job and go out like they did, like what the churches did here in Thessalonica at one time. They went out, there were some of the people that went out and sat on a hillside looking forward to Christ coming again, and they were saying, and the rest of you folks bring us something to eat. You know what the Apostle Paul said to do with those folks sitting out there? He said, let them starve. They should be taken. He who, took, he who takes, doesn't take care of his family is, is worse than the infidel. They get hungry enough, they'll come down off the hillside and go to work. Because he said work is a good thing, and we have to all do it. But life in the kingdom of God, and, and, and I'm going to go show you two or three different passages in two or three different places, not just here in Thessalonica, where he addresses that subject. If you go, probably the most theological, profound book in the New Testament is the book of Romans. And the Apostle Paul writes to them here in the 14th chapter, verses 17 and 18, and, and, uh, and listen to what he says about this joy that everybody wants, but very few have. And my take on that is this. We're so self, you can't have joy that's unspeakable, that is a gift from the Holy Spirit if you're primarily interested just in yourself because joy is a gift of God to those who put him in the center of things. So he says it this way. Here's, here's life in the kingdom of God that he's mentioned to the church at Rome. Uh, starting here at verse 17, he says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy. And peace and joy are, are terms that he puts together a lot. This word peace, arene, in the Greek term, means a, a type of inner contentment. Because all of us at one time or another have had internal turmoil, haven't we? This is the opposite extreme here. And it's not natural. It is a gift of God. He said, in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. There's something extremely attractive about people who have an inner serenity and an unfaked smile. And that's what he's talking about. If you go over into the next chapter, the Apostle Paul continues to discuss that. And he says that... Uh, in Galatians, he says it, it's a fruit of the Spirit, so it's not something that's natural. And I'll have to keep repeating that because people want what is spiritual without becoming spiritual. And it doesn't happen. And they, they live disappointed and frustrated. But here in the 15th chapter, down about 13, verse 13, he says again, May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with the hope of the power of the Holy Spirit. I think that one of the great mistakes that I helped make too, that the church 
almost universally among those of us who believe the Bible have made is that we have put too much emphasis on evangelism and not enough emphasis on spiritual growth. Evangelism probably gets kind of easy if, there, if Christians' life is a recommendation for the kingdom of God, if we're a good advertisement, and the Bible says that's what we are to be. So he's, he's wanting to fit, he, his, his, his intent is to fill us with hope, peace, or contentment, and joy. Now, there, there, is, there is joy in the kingdom of God through obedience. The joy of doing God's will. Now, if you've never done what I'm telling you here, you don't know what I'm talking about, but I, I would encourage you to try it. Let's say that you get a, I get a call to go to the hospital, go, and someone is there, and the doctor has said, you know, you're in trouble. You, you could die. When that word first comes to anybody, I don't care whether you're a Christian or not, it's a shock. And, and there is an emotional reaction. And sometimes it's not very pretty. And all of us have that. But if you go into that room, sit down there on the edge of the bed with whoever that is, speak with them and get their mind off of dying and on their mind on the Lord, it's an amazing transformation formation that takes place when you leave that hospital room you know that God has used you to help them and I'm telling you on the way out to the car as you leave the hospital back to the car your feet hardly touch the ground you know that God has used you to bless somebody else and the joy that is it's an internal something or other that is unspeakable And once you've experienced it, you then learn and are actually eager to be used of God again to experience that magnificent joy. Ralph, you ought to be full of it, you know, because that's what he does. I don't mean just full of it. I mean full of joy. Yeah. In 3 John, John's writing, and he's complimenting what, the Apostle Paul has been saying in one of his letters here because the last two letters 2nd and 3rd John are just one chapter so when I write down that it's 3rd John 1 4 you know there's only <laughs> it can't be much more than that but here in the fourth verse listen to what he says this is an Apostle talking I have no greater joy than to hear that my children, meaning the people in his church, are walking in the truth. To see God's people being blessed from those of us in positions of leadership is probably one of the most, I would say, heartwarming experiences that you can have. Now, James creates a little problem for us. When you look at what he wrote, 
he was actually saying something that in the flesh you would negatively neglect, or you would just deny. Because what he's going to say here, here in the first chapter, will cause you to say, I don't know whether I can buy that or not. What he actually says, and I'm reading, verse 2, chapter 1, James. Consider it pure joy, my brethren, whenever you face trials of many, ki of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. I don't know whether you've ever had your faith really tested or not. I did a long time ago, but not, not since. L let me explain it. I went to four years at Kentucky Christian over in Grayson. Did pretty well. Got a scholarship to the Divinity School at Vanderbilt University. I couldn't have gone otherwise because it's re Vanderbilt's really expensive. All of my teachers there at Vanderbilt, every one of them in the Divinity School, were neo-orthodox. Now that probably doesn't mean anything to you, so I need to tell you what it means. Because the, it's the, even the title is uh, self-contradictory. Neo means new, orthodox means old. It's new old. Well, what the heck is that? What it means is the professors there used old terms but gave them new definitions. And this has really almost destroyed many denominations in our country. The Methodist Church just now is being divided over issues that came out of that liberal neo-orthodox movement. Now, what do they mean by that? New, term, new interpretation, old words. Let's can say uh, the virgin birth. If you would ask a neo-orthodox preacher or professor, do you believe in the virgin birth, they would immediately respond, I think the Bible teaches the virgin birth. But if you know how to phrase the question, and you would say, but do you believe that Mary had a baby without having intercourse with a man? He would well, of course not. And most of the miracles in the Bible, they say the Bible teaches, but we, we don't believe it. Now, I'm sitting, I'm a, I'm a, a product of uh, northern Kentucky from a Bible college that taught you that every word in the scripture is true, even the cover is true when it says Holy Bible. And you believe it with every thread of fiber in your existence. And all of a sudden you walk into a situation where all of the professors with degrees from Yale and Harvard and Princeton and Yale, Vanderbilt and University of Chicago. <laughs> I mean, credentials that were truly impressive. And they were telling you that, yeah, but in this modern day and era, Science has pretty well proved that this can't happen. 
da-da-da-da-da, and you're bombarded with that, how would you respond? I was fortunate enough, and I think it was because God had guided me to, to be with a bunch of guys who already had a master's degree from conservative Bible colleges and universities, and they included me in their group. I got to drink coffee with them and talk about da-da-da-da-da. That and Billy Graham organization at that particular time put out a magazine called Christianity Today. The professor, or the, rather the, the, the guy who ran the magazine was Carl F.H. Henry. Dr. Henry had uh, three earned doctorates, a brilliant man. And, and I, you, I read that magazine just like I read the Bible. And he's dead now. And when I get to heaven, whether he likes it or not, I'm going to kiss him right, in the, right on the mug. Because what was in that magazine and, and what those young men, most of them older than I, I had no answers for all that stuff. Answers were there. I just didn't know them. And Dr. Henry and what he put in Christianity, and I still have some of the issues that I used back then. And they, finally it was put in a book. I may, I may, I probably won't get to kiss Billy Graham. He's too tall. But that was the testing of my faith. And it was a serious testing. When you had to stand up, and, and, and one of the papers that I wrote, and then I got back and had a C plus. I never got a C plus on anything in my life. So I go to my advisor and say, what happened here? He said, let's go. And so we went to the president of the Divinity School, sat down with him. He tore the back sheet off where he had written something on it, and, and the grade was on it, and handed it to him. He, read, he sat there and read through it in all fairness and said, what kind of grade do you? I said, I'm not going to tell you. And the other guy said, you tell me what you think it should be. He said, it should be an A minus or, or at worst a B plus because he, you've left this book and this book out of the bibliography. Then he handed him the sheet that showed him that he gave me a C plus. They had a faculty meeting. And poor little old Scott Rawlings was right stuck in the middle of that. If you can imagine how the professor looked at me every time I walked down the hall from then on, it wasn't pleasant. So you had the pressure of the professors trying to teach you that the Bible is, a, is useful, but is not totally true. Bible Christianity as a tradition, they would say, is a good thing. But the Bible is not totally true. And I had to live with that and learn to overcome it. The good thing about being bullheaded and not very bright is you, you're not afraid to draw a line in the sand and, and to stick with it. I believe and still do, even stronger than ever, that every word in the Bible is, the, is coming from the mind of God himself and therefore shouldn't be questioned. So that's where I stand, and, and if you don't like that, shame on you. That was the testing of faith. Now, let me tell you something, folks. It, 
when we get to the book of Revelation that we're going to start here in a month or so, you will see how the early church was tested not just in what they believed, but whether they could exist or not. Now, I'm going to tell you what I think here, and this is a matter of opinion that you didn't ask for, but you showed up, so you're going to have to listen. I don't believe that I will live probably long enough to see what's getting ready to come down the pike for those of you who believe like I do, that the Word of God is absolutely authoritatively true and totally dependable. I think we're within a few years, because it's already happened in Canada that I know of, that I can document, that there are certain passages of Scripture that if you quote out loud in public, you will be legally accused of hate speech. For instance, if you were to quote Jesus when he said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one will come to the Father except through me. You will be legally charged with not being inclusive, and you will be charged with hate speech. And you will be tested. And I look at our young folks, and I think, jeez, it's been a cakewalk for us our young folks are going to face some really tough times. And I think it's incumbent upon us to do all we can to prepare them intellectually, spiritually. And, and, and I think, see, the, the good thing that happened when you, get, when, you, when you face a situation that you know you can't handle is to have mature believers help you through it. We need to learn to rely on one another, support each other. Bury, the New Testament actually says that bearing each other's burdens or carrying each other's burdens whenever we face difficulty fulfills the law of Christ, which is the law of love. We need to be aware of that. I don't have time today to tell you what I think is on the horizon that I have documentary proof for. But I'll just give you a hint, and then you can look it up for yourself. I strongly suspect that within a few years, we will no longer have greenbacks or dollars. I think all of the money will be digital. And if it is digital, there's a lot that goes with it. A lot that I don't know, and what little I do know is frightening and could actually end any support for the church. Give you a heads up. Now, with that good news... The next thing he says here in, was to pray continually. Now, I've, I've talked about this before. Learning to pray continually is not a religious activity. Learning to pray continually is a consciousness of the presence of God with you all the time. It's that simple. 
and and that consciousness of the presence of God will he will impress upon you at times and you will be free to without putting the words in your mouth outside you will be communicating with God that's the way I do it 99% of the time because I for one am not a big fan of public praying I think too often it becomes a performance rather than actually communication. And prayer should be sincere, intimate communication with the God who created us and put us here. Jesus actually took a stand against uh, performance praying. And yet we in the church have a lot of that. I was in a church service back some years ago and they asked someone to come to the platform, it's a large church, and lead in prayer. He said, okay. He came up there, he stood there for a minute, and he said, let's pray for the political leaders of our country. And he didn't say a word. Let's pray for the leaders of the church. And he just waited. For people to pray he made several suggestions for people to take the time to pray and then he said amen i was really impressed by that because it allowed us he led us to let us pray rather than listen to him say a prayer and i'm not for sure but what that is probably a recommended way for us to go tradition says no you get up and you call on somebody and they pray. Now, I don't think there's a thing wrong with that. But I'm inclined to believe there's a better way to do it. Jesus actually addressed the subject in the sixth chapter of Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. When he was talking about prayer, because there were those folks there who were prominent in Judaism who were public prayers. And they made a big deal out of it. Jesus addressed that subject this way. He said, verse 5, chapter 6, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. Now, the word hypocrite here means a performance. Praying as a performance. A hypocrite, as you all know, I've taught you, I think you know this by now, is, 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 uh, came from uh, play acting. The word itself comes from play acting. A hypocrite was not a person. It was a mask. One person in Greek drama would have several different masks because he'd play several different roles. And the mask that he wore was called a hypocrite. And so Jesus was saying, don't put on a mask and perform, but share your heart with the living presence of God. He goes on to say, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they've received their reward in full. So when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you outwardly. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling. In other words, don't pray for a half hour. 
hurry up and say a little something to the, and, and quit. Because you shouldn't be heard because of your many words because God already knows what you need anyway. Now, I'm not opposed to you calling on people to pray at a meal or whatever, even in a church service. But I am telling you that Jesus recommended that most of your praying be done all alone with God in a place that you have selected where nobody will interfere with you. And, and I've always told the people, who, some of the people who pray in tongues upset people who don't. Get, they get nervous. and so, so I tell them, you know, go to your prayer closet and pray. And I don't care if you stand on your head and spit nickels. That's between you and God. But in public, pray so people understand every word that you say. Now, one of the things that we need to learn in praying as, as citizens of the kingdom of God. Now, I've got to watch myself here a little bit. Let's see how I'm doing. Okay. As citizens of the kingdom of God, we should be more concerned about the kingdom of God than we do this world. Why? Who's in charge of this world according to Jesus? Jesus said the devil is. He's the prince of this world. Now, that being true, our primary concern, because you and I, according to the Bible, have dual citizenship. You all are citizens of these United States. I tried to get Patrick and Eddie to have citizenship here in the U.S. We're going to do a, an adult adoption. The local judge turned it down. I should have cut his tires. And, but it would have given them free access back into the country whenever they chose to. But, uh, and by the way, Patrick's wife is probably going to have a baby next week. That's what he told me anyway, and I know he knows all about that. Uh, I think he probably should have checked with you, Jennifer. <laughs> but uh, anyway, but according to, if I'm correct here, we should do more praying about the things of the kingdom than we do the world in which we're living. And you and I both know that even in church meetings and church, where they're sitting back there and eating donuts and getting fat and, and creating your sugar, uh, why you do all that kind of stuff and putting sugar in your coffee and all that. I'm just having a little fun with you. Don't just relax. You and I both know that conversations will eventually get to politics, sports, so on and so forth, the things of this world. Very little of the conversation has to do with life in the kingdom of God. And yet, when you are converted, if you truly are converted, and if you are born again, born that means that you have received in your life the presence of God called the Holy Spirit. If you're truly born again, your concern should be both for our world that's legitimate, but primarily for the kingdom of God on earth. Here's the way Jesus said it in the 17th chapter of John. I think it's in verse 9 here, if I remember right. Jesus is, is praying, and he's talking to his Father, and this is recorded by John. And Jesus is praying for his disciples. 
He said, I pray for them. I'm not praying for this world. But for those you have given me, and they're yours, meaning his disciples that followed him. But that statement we overlook so often when he said, I'm not praying for this world. Why? Because this world is temporary. The spirit of God, the, temp, the, the, the kingdom of God is eternal. You're born into it. Now, I don't know whether you're aware of this or not, but you should be. And if, you're, if you haven't been, you ought to at least write it down so that you know that it's true. Because in the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul specifically says, you have dual citizenship. Here's what, in the 20th verse of chapter 3, the Apostle Paul said, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enabled him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So the Apostle Paul is pointing out here, you've got dual citizenship. And the one that's most important is your eternal one because when you were born again, you were given the gift of eternal life. It's not temporary, but all of this is temporary. So he's saying, invest your prayer and your time and your money in those things that are eternal because they're of far, more, far greater value. Now, praying does something else, too. There's a couple of things here I want to point out to you. Prayer, which is the consciousness, is communication with the consciousness of the presence of God with us always. For in 13th chapter of Hebrews, what he said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Now, there are times when we are not conscious of his presence, but he's always there. And the more you become aware of his continual presence, the more you get over feeling, putting yourself as the primary area of concern. Jesus equips his people to be of service to themselves? No. He equips us with spiritual gifts to serve others. He said, I didn't come to serve myself. I come to serve others. For why? Because this pleases my Father. Rising above self-centeredness almost takes a miracle. It's so difficult to do. Then the other point I want to make before we go on and, and get to the end here is, prayer is con answered prayer is conditional. And you guys ain't going to like this much. And girls, you're going to love me. Because the Bible makes a strong case for the fact that men have a problem of seeing themselves as the most important in the household. Have a problem. I was actually told yesterday of some guy, some husband, who won't even fill up his plate at supper time because that's woman's work. That boy would not have lived long at our house. But here, and then on your outline is incorrect. It says verse 17. It isn't. It's verse 7 in 1 Peter 3. But listen to what it, I'm just going to read it. 
He says, Husbands, in the same way be considerate as you live with your wives. Treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. Now here's the kicker. So that nothing will hinder your prayers. He's actually saying that God's willingness to answer our prayers is contingent upon, if you're a husband, the way that you treat your wife. You see, women in the women's movement, and they're a bunch of flakes, don't realize that Jesus was the primary one who, who elevated women from servants to equals. And he did it on purpose. Because they're created just like the man in the image of God. And should be treated as such. Let's see, now I'm getting, getting close there. The, the plane is circling the field. He ends up by saying this, I want you to give thanks in all circumstances. Now this one is a tough one. Because by nature, whenever a bad circumstances comes, we react emotionally, don't we? And how we all do, Christian or non-Christian. That's when we need somebody close by, a wife, a good brother in Christ, who can help us settle down and get our mind back where it belongs. Because we are, as Jesus told Peter, he said, you know, I know you mean well. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, isn't it? And it is in all of us. The key, I think, was one that the Apostle Paul gave when he said, and, and he said, I want you as followers of Christ to make a commitment to be imitators of God. Well, that means you've got to know somebody well enough to imitate them. That really helps. I can remember there isn't anything that a little boy growing up likes to do rather than to imitate his daddy. I can remember back when we had snows. My dad would walk between the house and the barn, and my brother Chuck and I thought it was funny to, to be able to walk in his tracks, you know. I don't know, maybe that made us feel big, I don't know. But we did that. And he'd just grin, keep on going. But he says here in the fifth chapter, be imitators of God just like Jesus did. When you see, and, and the point here now is, in all circumstances, be grateful. All circumstances. Now, the reason this becomes discomforting for me and for you too is, the more difficult the circumstance, the potential is greater for honoring God. The more difficult, if everything is going good, it's no big deal to be faithful. But you see, you can be Grateful because in all circumstances, God is there. And if you're aware of his presence, because he doesn't promise in Scripture to 
get you out of trouble. He promises to give you the strength to go through it. There's a big difference. You drive down the road and you hit another car head on, you're apt to be killed. I don't care how much you're praying one way or the other. And if you have a, something broken and whatever, God isn't going to protect you from that idiocy. But he will strengthen you to be able to endure it. And the worst that can happen to you is still good. Because if you die and you're a Christian, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You can't lose. You can't lose. Regardless of the circumstance, you can't lose. If you have that relationship, abiding presence of the living God. And you can't have that unless you're born again. What I'm saying is agony has the potential of increasing intensity in prayer. The more trouble you're in, the more serious you are in your prayer life. That even was the case with Jesus. Here in the, in the Gospel of Luke, here in the 24th, what is it, 22nd chapter? Down toward the end of the chapter in verse 44, here's what it says. This is about Jesus. Verse 43 says, The angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. That's what God does. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. The more, the darker the night, the brighter the light. The more difficult the situation, the greater the opportunity to be a testimony for the God that created us, saved us, and loves us. I think maybe if I summed it up here in closing, I'd just say it like this. If you and I can agree that we want to live our lives in such a way that we please God, we please our Father, I think it would be easier for us. You know, little boys growing up, there was just three boys in my family. I was the baby. I had the better deal. And, and there were three boys that grew up. And, and, uh, and the one thing every little boy wants is to please his mother. And you never really outgrow that. Just to hear, you know, and mother was hard to please because her standards were pretty high. You brought your report card home and you gave it to her first. And she's the one that signed it. And if it didn't look just right, you had the devil to pay. And that wasn't the only way. I remember... And we, you long to hear your mother say good things about you till you die almost, or till she's gone. 
I was a sophomore at Kentucky Christian playing basketball. And mom and dad drove, drove up from Germantown. It was Thanksgiving time. And, and Alice Kay was going to go home with us to spend the weekend. And mother and daddy were there for the ball game. I don't remember who won or lost. But I do remember what she said. I went to the shower, changed clothes, came back, got in the car without backseat, with the car with Alice Kay. Mother turned around in the car. She didn't say, hi, kiss my foot or anything. She turned around and said, you couldn't hit the broad side of a barn tonight, could you? That wasn't what I wanted to hear. You know, you want to hear things. Now, pr probably she was right. But you just long to hear those good things. You see, we should be that way with our Heavenly Father. Because the Bible says that when we die and come up before the Lord, as believers, we can expect to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter thou, come on into the joy that I've prepared for you since the foundation of the world. If we can get to the place in our spiritual development where we just really live to please our Father, we'll come a long way, baby. Okay, it's time to pray. Father, dismiss us with your presence. Help us to be, through the power of your Holy Spirit, to be aware more each day of your continual presence. That's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You're free to go. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page.